Hill. It's good to see you in person. If you're online, thank you for joining us as well. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. We're in our series, Summer in the Psalms, and we're doing 10 of them this summer. And uh, so we only have a couple of more, and then we'll be back into the fall with a new sermon series called Just Like Jesus. So, uh, Psalm 8. Now, about 15 years ago, Abby and I took a little journey to a conference in Atlanta, Georgia, called Thirsty. Thirsty Conference was a conference that was primarily for college or collegiate leaders, college pastors throughout the nation. It was the largest, one of the largest gatherings of collegiate pastors and ministers throughout the entire country. And of course, like most conferences, all these big names were there. And, but there was one name that I wanted to go sit under, and he had a breakout session. So they usually have like uh, the A team, which are on the main stage, and then the B team uh, are those that have the breakout sessions. Okay, so I wanted to go to the B team because there was a man who was leading one of the largest parachurch ministries in all the nation, and it happened to be in Texas, of course, everything's bigger in Texas, and so he was leading a collegiate ministry called Breakaway at this little bitty insignificant, insignificant SEC college called A&M. So, whoops. So, uh, he was leading this ministry called Breakaway, and I, I just so admired him from a distance and had never really gotten up close, and he was leading this breakout session. And it's at this session that he talked about how he began his week. He'd get up and, which is good, he'd get up and he'd go to this coffee shop and he would buy a cup of coffee and he would get a blank piece of paper and he'd answer several questions on that piece of paper. And while he was answering those, it helped him reorient and maybe restart his week. I began this similar practice until I realized that I was a college pastor and did not have the kind of money that he had. So, uh, okay, you get it. So we stopped doing that, but I would still, on routine, answer these same questions. When I became a senior pastor, every Sunday morning, I would, I would get a piece of paper out, write these questions down, and begin kind of like a reminder on why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, I won't go through all the questions today, but just two, because they actually find themselves in our text today. The first question was this, who is God? And he would ask this question, and then he would just go through a list of all the realities, all the truths about who God is. And then after that question, he would ask this question, who am I? What if I told you today that until you honestly understand who God is, you will never truly know who you are? The world wants to reverse that. Figure out who you are, and then find out who God is. But we ought to have the perspective of, until I honestly understand who God is, I'll never be able to truly know who I am. The world's going to tell you who you are based on what you do, or on what your preferences are, or on what you think that you ought to, to be like, or to be liked. But David's going to show us today how everything gets reoriented. When you truly and honestly understand who God is, then you can understand who you are. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be at Psalm 8. It helps us to know that you're there. If you're online, type word. But if you're at Psalm 8, will you say word? Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. 
You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Verse 3, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is a human being or what is man that you are mindful or you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Verse 9, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. We, we have no idea why David wrote this psalm or if it was sung as a congregation or if it was sung on a personal Level, But we can imagine that David spent a considerable amount of time camping with no tent. Have you ever gone camping without a tent? It's difficult for those of us who have nice mattresses that we sleep in at home. David would camp outside and he would be watching the sheep and he would lay down his head on that fluffy rock and he would put his head up into the sky and he would be able to see the vastness of the universe. One of the advantages we have living in a rural setting is we can still see the stars. You get closer to a major city and all you see are the city lights. Minor comparison to the universe. But David answers these two questions. We see it, this first question, who God is, we see David begin to answer he comes honestly to, to and he says, he says something fascinating here. Because he says, Lord, our Lord. Now, I want you to understand here that for you to understand who God is, we have to do a little bit of study on theology, the study of God. There are some that want the study of God to begin with us because we are the, we're the ones that are going to be able to understand who God is. And so we're going to begin with us. But let me tell you, if the theology begins with you, in the middle it will be about you, and in the end it's just about you. But theology is about the study of God. And I might suggest to you that the best way to study God is to hear what God has to say about himself. Now, admittedly, the study of God is something that we don't do near enough about. We don't spend enough time studying God. Too often we come to church and we want church to make us feel good. No. The goal of the church is not to make you feel good or just tell me what to do, how to do it. That's not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is to glorify God by reaching out to those who are far from God to become followers of Jesus, declaring the gospel, discipling the believer, and deploying the church to reach those who are in need of help. So it's theology, if it's, it's to be proper, it's, to be got, it's got to begin with God. Why? Well, God is the source of all things. You want to know what God is like, you got, you got to go to God. You, you can't go to anything else. Now, you, you, you have to understand that his creatures can only study him to the extent that he grants them the ability to study him. And God, by his grace, has given us some primary sources to study him with that every person in the world can observe and see. 
We learn in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that God has made man in his image and in his likeness, which implies and indicates that you and I have the unique ability to have communication with God. No other creation has that but man. We learn through what we call a general revelation, the general revealing, you can observe in nature that there's someone or something beyond what we can see. We have even had people who will say there's an intelligent designer in the midst of all of this. The problem with general or natural revelation is that it's limited because it may describe the power, but it cannot tell you who the power is. This is why, for the Christian, and I think if all mankind would understand this, the best way to know God is to know God by way of the Word. The Bible has revealed God's clearest explanation of who God is and also who you are. Now, if I've lost you, I hope I haven't. You say, you haven't gotten to verse 1 yet. I know. If you want to honestly understand who God is, you have to go to the Bible. And some may scoff at that. And there are some who have attended this church and were here even this morning who scoff at the idea that you go to the Bible to understand who God is. Yes. The Bible is many things, but it's primarily two things. Number one, the Bible is a witness of the one who lies beyond what we can see. But number two, it is an indispensable account of God and his sovereign plan to save mankind. Now, that we got that out of the way, what does this text say about all that? Well, look what he says. He says, Lord, you see this? And then he says, our Lord. We say, okay, that's cute. He repeats himself. The difference is that these are two different names for God. They reveal two different things about who God is. He says, Lord, it's in all caps. In your English Bibles, uh, the, those that are, have translated this have helped us understand when, when it's in all caps, it's identifying Yahweh. Yahweh. Covenant God Yahweh. It's the same root in the Hebrew that in, in, when Moses comes in front of the burning bush and he says, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. He's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm the eternal, self-existing God. Who is God? God is eternal. God is self-existing. God is the covenantal God. He is and he has been and he always will be. But then you see the second Lord and it's not in all caps. There's a reason. That's Adonai. Adonai is literally governor. Now, sometimes in our context, we don't like our governors. We don't want to be governed, especially in Texas. We don't want to be governed with anything. We, we just want to be able to do whatever we want. But in this sense, God is saying, hey, I'm governing. I'm ensuring. I'm sovereign. I'm ruling and reigning. I'm, I'm communicating to you that God is Yahweh, self-existing, always been, but he's also intimately involved. This is what he is. He has graciously entered into involvement. He's not set a watch and then let it go and spin out of control and, and, and you're wondering, well, what is God doing right now? That's not what's happening. 
God has not wound up the clock and then just let it run and his hands are off and he's not involved. No, God is intimately involved into the affairs of our times. We know this because we've read the book of Revelation. That he's going to return. And he's going to set all things right. So David is highlighting and he, he then says how magnificent, how magnificent is what? Your name so when he thinks about the name of God, he just looks, and some of your translations say, how majestic is your name? How magnificent is your name? He's looking into the skies, or he's seeing all the earth, and he says, when I think about the name of God throughout all the earth, it's just majestic. In a sense, it's like you go and you find a, a lake up in the mountains. You ever been to a lake in the mountains where it just looks like glass? It looks like no one's had ever touched it, although you know they have. And you take a rock, and you, you take that rock, and you, you throw it into the lake just to see what would happen. And that rock hits the water, and all of a sudden, you, you see, what, these ripples. It's the way that David thinks when he's looking at the magnificence of the name of God. When he, it's throughout the earth. It just is spreading and spreading. When he looks at the name of God, he goes, you're magnificent. So God is... God is sovereign, and God is governing, and God is always existing, and he's created all these. But look here, his name throughout the earth, it just covers. Then he says, and you've covered the heavens with your majesty. Some translations say glory. That there's not one place that you can go in any of the universe and not look and go, God is glorious. For some, we might not be able to say magnificent, but we might be able to say, wow. And that wowness defeats any of that woo-woo nonsense you hear today from so many so-called churches and so many so-called commentators on what the world is going on. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, you've covered the heavens, or from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you've established a stronghold. How often do children teach us of the God we so often forget? See, birth, we're going to do a little lesson here. Birth doesn't happen randomly. I'm not going to go into the science of it too far. There's a process, and you never go, well, how did that happen? We know how it happened talk about it later. But I want to talk about after this nine months, something beautiful that takes place. You see, the biological process of birth truly is astounding. After nine months, most often a baby's brain will send a hormone through the placenta into the mother's pituitary gland. Although it's complicated, and I've seen videos of this at birthing classes. The critical message is given from the little baby in the belly to the placenta, through the pituitary gland, to the mama that say, it's time. And all of a sudden this process begins where this baby's complex systems of lungs and the heart and the brain and all this nervous system are all ready to make it on their own. And the child does not breathe until it is exited out and said, I'm here. 
And right before the, the mother and child separate, there's this one last bolt of blood transfusion that goes from the baby's um, baby to the, or from the mama to the baby to the umbilical cord. And then that placenta, wherever all those nutrients are stored, are, are there. And all of that happens at the exact right moment. And he's saying from the mouths of infants, so what happens when a baby comes out? They begin to cry. I'm here. I'm breathing. I'm alive. That cry shows that God is powerful and strong and he's sovereign. He's governing. And he says, man, when I, when I look at the mouths of infants and I look at the, the, ba the, the, the babies, I, the nursing babies, I, I see that you've established your stronghold, your strong God. See, children tend to teach us things about God that we so often forget. I mean, you remember when Jesus was was riding on a donkey, and he's in Matthew chapter 21, and he's, he's cleansed the temple. He's, he's healed some people in the temple. He's, the blind have now seen. And, and then all of a sudden, the, the kids say in verse 15 of chapter 21 of Matthew, Hosanna to the son of David. And it made all the religious people indignant. We don't use that word today, but there's a lot of indignant people today. They're indignant. They're, they're not happy about it. They don't like that these kids are saying anything. They want them to be quiet. Just be quiet in church. Don't say a word. Jesus says in verse 16, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes, have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. He's referencing this verse. He's saying, you guys know Psalm 8. You guys have memorized. You guys know this. Haven't you heard? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, there's praise to be given to God. David has looked up like so many of us do at on the weekends when we can look up into the sky and we can see the handiwork of God's hands. But I love what he says in verse 3. He says, observe your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you set in place. David knows who created everything. God is covenantal. God is sovereign. He is also the creator of all things. Of course, David didn't have telescopes like we have today. David didn't have, I mean, he had a flute, I guess that would work, but he didn't have a telescope of which he could observe the vastness of the creation. A few weeks ago, our children went to what we call cousins camp. That means no children in our home for a week. It's a miracle. <laughs> I love my kids. They went to cousins camp. That's where all the cousins on the one side of the family get together and they have camp with grandma and our pops, our papa and grand, grandmama. Can't get the names right. But they went, and this year, every year there's a theme. And, and this year was kind of a space theme. I mean, they had this rocket built outside the house. They had an astronaut standing outside the house. They all had made, they all made shirts with their names on it. It's just crazy. I mean, they go all out. We didn't even pay them. But Abby's father and I began to talk about some of the things he had discovered as he was just learning about space because they were putting tours about space and all these things. Here's, here's something interesting that we discussed. He says, if you travel at the speed of light, that's 186,000 miles per second. It would take you eight minutes to get to the sun. To go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way would take you about 33,000 years. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some, hello, 20 galaxies known as the local group. To cross that group, you have to travel for two 
million years. The local group belongs to the Virgo cluster, part of the even larger local super cluster, which is a half a billion light years wide. To cross the entire known universe would take you, get this, 20 billion light years. You, you and I have no way to compute that. I mean, we understand like five nuggets for a dollar. We get that. But when we start talking about 20 billion, 20 billion light years, our things begin to melt out of our ears. I mean, we don't understand. David says, you've, when I observe your heavens, meaning you made it, when I observe that your fingers, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, I can't help but say, wow. So is your life feeling a little out of sorts this week? Is your day feeling a little bit long already? You, are you on the tip of just, just some f- frustration and some angst? Look up. Look up, dear friend. And you can discover his, his name is magnificent. He is the Lord. He is Adonai. This is who God is. He is covenantal. He is sovereign. And he is the creator. But David doesn't end there. He begins to answer the question on, well, who, who you are. He turns the view in verse 4 to himself. He says, what, what is a human being? Some translations say, what is man? What is man that you be mindful of him? What is man that you would remember him? So he's, he's compared this now. You've got all this creation. The name of the Lord has gone all throughout the whole earth. And then he goes, but what am I? Compared to all of that, 20 billion light years across the universe, the known universe even today, what am I even in the midst of all of it? Why would God even care for those of us that when we compare ourselves to the rest of the universe, we're like a grain of sand? Why would God be mindful of us? Because that is who he is. I don't know if you have a business that still has a fax machine. The fax machines are fascinating. Did you know that you can receive spam mail in your fax machine? When I was a pastor in Belleville, we we had this fax machine. I could easily hear it, and it would often print out all kinds of madness. And often it was for a cruise or for new windows or for whatever else we did not need at the time. We'd receive advertisements that were impersonal and not wanted. Can I just tell you, God has not faxed you a message. He, he's not impersonal. Look, we even come to this today where we don't want to answer the phone, just send me a text. I mean, you know what's happened. Now we're going to have to get personal. You ever called somebody and they didn't answer, but then you text them and they immediately answer? Okay. I don't want to talk to anybody. Just text me, right? Can I just tell you, God, God didn't send you a fax and God didn't send you a, a text message and God didn't even make a phone call. God shows up. And he did it through the person of Jesus Christ. So he said, what what are you mindful of us? You'd remember, you'd remember him. You'd remember, David said, how you would remember me. You know me? You, you, You relate to me? Second line says, the son of man. 
What's he talking about? To a degree, he's talking about our fallen nature. We're, we're not made in the likeness of animals. We're made in the likeness of God. The world tells you that you're made in the likeness of an animal. That is reverse what the Bible says. It says that we're made, we're a son of man, sons of Adam, sons of Adam and Eve. That you would look after him. He's referring to our fallen state that even though we've sinned against God, he still pays attention to us. He cares for us. That you'd remember us. He says in verse 5 that you made him a little less than God. And you say, what, what does this mean? Again, he's talking about made in the image and likeness of God. Now, some translations say of angels. And the writer of Hebrews will use that in reference to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. What's he getting at here? He's saying, you made him a little less than God, but you've crowned him with glory and honor. God made us and created us, which means you've never met a person not made in the image of God. Think about that. Regardless of all the trials they've had in their life, well, they just, that's just what they do. No, they are important because they're made in the image of God. They keep making mistake after mistake, and they're going to do this again. They just might, but they matter because they're made in the image of God. Man, they just will never get over that. Why do you keep loving on them? Because they're made in the image of God. Man, they just, they're just systemic, and they just keep going over and doing it over and over. They're going to burn you again. Burn it again. They're made in the image of God. None of us are truly ordinary when you begin to think about it. You're made and to know God and to glorify God and enjoy all the things that God has made. And he did not spare any expense when it came to his creation. Like fruit. God could have just made apples. And we just had a bunch of apples. Apple this, apple that, apple pie. Not bad idea. But we got things like strawberries, blueberries, and raspberries bananas, peaches, even kiwi. He's given us all kinds of stuff. And my favorite, my favorite fruit, avocados. It's a fruit. It's extra, but it's fruit. Flowers. God, God could, have, could have given us just one flower. He could have, like we have in Tyler, he could have just given us roses. Now, there's all kinds of beautiful roses and colors of roses. and be They're beautiful, but he's also given us tulips, and he's given us sunflowers. He's given us daffodils. He's given us all kinds of flowers that you can go, look, honey, I love you, right? I mean, this is things that you, but let me, let me, let me ask. He, God did not spare any expense in his creation. In a similar way, when you, when you stop before you eat, do you pray? Why do we pray before we eat? Because we thank the God of creation who made all these things. I look. You crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you made him the ruler of the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all the sheep and the oxen, as well as the animals in the wild. You see, you exist because God is a creative God and he made us and given us a spot here. In fact, the very reason you're here today is because God is interested in you. He cares about you. The Hebrew word here for God in verse 5 is the word Elohim. That God, even, in, even though we have sinned against him, he still has crowned us with glory and honor. What I find interesting is David could have said he, he created us elevated above the animals. Or a little higher than the animals. But that would have been too low for God's creation. He, 
He instead says that we're made a little lower than God to reflect the wonder of this creative God in the fact that we are made for God. What I love about this is that you never see deer hunt men. You never see a pig set out a trap for a man. Why? Because there's a creative order. God has created you in his image and likeness. And the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea, all of that was set under man. Now, when we see this again, this application to this text is twofold. One, there's an idea and presence of, of who we are, that God has made us. But then there's a second application because it does point to Jesus. This psalm is going to point us to Jesus that when he says in the Hebrews 12, uh, 2, 9, that we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So David tells us, and then the writer of Hebrews points us back to this very moment, that we ought then to worship the Lord because although we are a little puny, and maybe some of us feel a little insignificant, God has gr graciously created us, made us in his image and likeness, and now he says, hey, I have a job for you, I have a plan for you. So who are you? You have significance because God created you have significance because God loves you. Jesus has come and he has come to rescue us from that which we've been under for so long. Have you ever been singing a song at church and wondered why, why are we still singing this song? Can we just move on? You ever wondered that? The hymns do it. So do praise songs. Psalm 136 does it. Wait till we get to that in 10 years. You say, how many times are we going to repeat this song? Why, why are they talking about this again? You know why? We're, we're forgetful. So, so David goes back to the very beginning again. And he bookends it all and says, hey, don't forget. Lord, our Lord. Covenant, sovereign, magnificent is your name throughout the earth. He repeats it because it's an invitation. It's an invitation to praise the beauty and majesty of this glorious God that we serve. It's an invitation for you to say, hey, because God has sovereign and covenantial and he's the creator and he's made us in his image and likeness and he's set us a, a little lower than, than God. We, we are set here and we have an opportunity to respond to him. And so I began to think, what are some ways that we can respond to him practically from this psalm? I think there's five things before we close. On who God is and who we are, we should have some humility. This psalm should humble us and cause us to marvel at God's grace and that he sent his son as our savior. We ought to pause and be humbled by this majestic savior. Dignity. We should treat every person, especially those with whom we disagree, with dignity. I'm paraphrasing here, but Spurgeon is known to say, do you have any room in your heart for those with whom you disagree? 
We should treat the unborn with dignity, those with special needs with dignity, the widow and the widower with dignity, those suffering from sickness with dignity, those who look different from us with dignity, those who struggle with addiction with dignity, those who are in need financially with dignity, those we oppose with dignity. Why? Because they're made in the image and likeness of God. Disciple. We ought to have humility, we ought to have, give dignity, but we also ought to disciple. This should be a theme in our homes. We should help our children to understand how to love and fear and serve God. We should teach our children how to love somebody that may be difficult to love. We want to know why sometimes children walk away from the church or maybe even think that they walk away from Christianity. It's often because they've seen the hypocrisy of the adults that are in their lives. Stewardship. We should be good stewards of what God has given us. We should be good stewards with God's creation. He's given us dominion over it. He did this at the very beginning. It's called the dominion mandate. God has given us dominion over these things. He's entrusted these things to us, so let's steward them well. And then lastly, we should enjoy them. Let's forget them all. Let's forget the movies. We should go for a hike. It's not hard to get lost in Lindsay Park. You should go take a hike and remember the beauty and majesty of God. Do you honestly understand who God is? If so, you'll truly know who you are. And when you do that, you'll be willing to give it all to Him. I'm going to share something very personal. A year ago, about 7.40, I got a phone call on this day that a good friend had died. A pastor in Houston, Texas gave his life to save another life. Pushed his friend out of an 18-wheeler coming down, barreling down the highway, and lost his life. Kids, wife, young. And I thought this morning quite a bit about what would John be saying to me today he would tell me not to say anything about him. But he'd also say, when you know who God is, then you're going to know who you are. And when you know who you are, you're going to be willing to give up everything for Jesus. In a celebration today, which we prayed hard for his oldest son, Gunner's being baptized today. Isn't that amazing? Do you know who God is? When you do, you'll know who you are. And when you know who you are, you're going to be willing to lay it all down for him. Will you pray with me? Father, we come. And Lord, we're asking that even now you would help us to remember who you are how you've worked, and how you're moving. And God, we're asking that even today, if there are those in this room that need to trust in you, they've never taken that step, that, Father, by your grace, they would respond to you today. Online, Father, there's somebody who needs to respond to you, even now, no matter when they're watching this, that they would respond to you in spirit and in truth. And, Father, for those of us who've gotten a little off track a little bit, help us to come back, help us to reorient our life around you and you alone. Help us to respond. 
by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, suffering the shame. And we do that today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you're